0: Well, let me welcome everyone who's here this morning, and I'll join in with the sentiments earlier. We have quite a few people here. We have a number of visitors, uh, faces at least that are not too familiar to me uh, around the room. So we're glad you're here. I hope we uh, make you feel welcome. I hope you'll want to come back and be with us often. And uh, I trust that that effort has already been made, uh, putting forth that effort to do that. And the brethren here will continue to do that i got a couple of quick announcements I want to mention before I get into the lesson this morning. First of all, before I forget it, a lot going on over the next couple of weeks, so change some dates around. Out on the bulletin board I uh, put what's called upcoming events. Dates for a couple of those things have changed, so make sure if you come to the movie night, like to do the practice, uh, the song practice, all of that kind of thing. Check those dates because they're probably changed from the last time you looked. Um, Also, Montel is not here this morning, as a lot of you can see. She's uh, suffering from apparently a root canal that's gone bad, maybe looking at some oral surgery on Tuesday, so she's not feeling well. And uh, speaking of that, I came over here early to do the elements for the Lord's Supper, and somebody in here had already done those. And whoever you are, thank you very much for that, (laughs) but I don't know who you are, so uh, if you let me know, I will be certain to uh, thank you for that, but I appreciate that. Um, I think that's all I want to get into uh, before the lesson, so let's let's proceed and talk about our wrap-up, and I'll start with the question that I asked at the beginning of the quarter might seem like a little bit of a strange question, but it's a very practical one. Are we, if we're talking about unity in the church, in my church, in the Lord's church, um, are we united at East Orange? You may remember that we began by looking at what unity really is. And I want to go back to that. I changed this a little bit, but I want to go back to this. I asked the question, what is unity? And I asked, is our goal for this church to have what I call real unity or true unity, uh, because the word is thrown around quite a bit. So real unity, true unity, or at best, are we simply like most people trying to have what I'll call technically a union rather than a unity of believers? Because there is a distinct difference between the two. In reality, if you look around in the world, It doesn't matter if we're talking about a church or any other organization. Even if we're talking about a family or a group of friends or whatever it might be. In reality, what generally occurs in the world, and especially even in the religious world, in various congregations, is really disunity. Now, that may sound strange for me to say that, but I think if you look at the definitions and you look at the ideas, you would probably agree that's really true. Most families are not united most churches, the members of them, are not united. Most groups of friends, even though we may claim we're all together, we're all one, we're like the musketeers, we're really not, um, there's a lot of disunity that exists in the world. So let's talk about unity. Let's talk about what it really means. Let's remind ourselves as we did from the beginning. If we were to look up the definitions, I'm not going to belabor this, but, for example, I think one of the easiest things, if you come from a mathematical background, all the radii are the various uh, each radius of a circle is exactly the same that's what makes a circle and so they are in unity there's complete harmony in a circle every radius measures exactly the same so that's what unity really is there's a condition of harmony or accord there's continuity It doesn't matter where you jump around a circle. If you measure measure from the perimeter to the center of the circle, it's exactly the same. There's no deviation there. No change. And when you're talking about an organization such as the church, there's no deviation in purpose, in action. In fact, I'll say it like this. When I went back home, I preached for the congregation where I preached for about 15 years and where I preached about 15 years ago. And... There are some people who have passed away since that time. Some of our elderly members are now gone that were there. But the church and its purpose and why it exists and what they do on every, you know, each Lord's Day, etc., is the same. And I don't mean that it's a boring routine where they sing the same two songs and they do this and the same words are said. In the prayer. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the action there, the purpose there. And it should be that way. We have visitors who come back here, for example, who haven't been here in years. And they'll remark going out the door that it's good to see the church is, you know, alive and well. That we're still, you know, it's exactly what they expected to find. That's what we're talking about. It's a quality or a state of being made one. And, of course, made one by God is the idea. Let me go a little further, further with that. It's a combination or an ordering of parts each member here is not the same as the other member. You know, we could use the biblical analogy in 1 Corinthians 12. I may mention that later. But the idea is though even we are, even though we are parts of the whole and we are different parts, there is a combination or an ordering of those parts by God so that together we constitute a whole. We promote an undivided total effect. This church would not be what it is unless every member, as we commonly say, gets on board with that idea, with that purpose of existence, with what we're about, what we're trying to accomplish. And so it results in a singleness of effect. There is a symmetry, a consistency of character. All of these type phrases you'll find in the definition of unity. Now that is as opposed to the simple joining together of parts. Two or more things. A formation maybe of a single unit, but notice the phrase here, from two or more separate and independent units. Someone was talking to me the other day, or we were talking, about church. And we were talking about the difference in what we're trying to achieve here at this place, to have unity, as opposed to the common idea that exists in the the popular idea in the religious world you come as you are you bring your independent thought and action and purpose now stay with me for a moment because you might say well I think that's a good idea I do too to a degree but it is not that we're saying to someone simply come and be part of us and it doesn't matter what you think it doesn't matter what you promote it doesn't matter what ideas you have, even what suggestions you have for change. And I'm not talking about change that is within the realm of expedience, what might be profitable for the group here to adopt. I'm talking about change that is in violation of something that would be in here. And so the idea of come as you are and bring all of this, and we accept everybody in every practice and everything you want to do, no, we don't do that. And I hope we are never going to do that. If we do, I'm not going to be here. I know a lot of you are not either. Because that's just not what the Lord orders. So we are not joining a lot of different parts who really are not united in thought at all, or purpose, or action. You see, independent units, they may grow together as severed parts. And even though that you know that's... That statement in itself is just not grammatically correct. But yet, that's what people are trying to achieve in the religious world. Bring all these divided parts together and loosely connect them. Well, we're not trying to loosely connect them. Because you see, disunity, if you go back to the definition of that term, you'll find in the dictionary that disunity is the inability to agree. On important things. And there it is. If someone says, what are the important things? What do we have to agree on? I'm going to say it begins and ends right here. We have to agree on this. Now, I may not understand it, and you may not understand it, or some parts of it. But we start with a belief, an agreement, that this is the truth. And we unite on that. Now, we may struggle to arrive at the proper view of the truth, and that's fine. But we are at least accepting up front that this is the truth, and we're united on that. This place does not have a creed. It does not have a fundamental list, like, uh, you know, I was taught in school, a list of ten basic beliefs that we all agree on, but everything else is subject to your own opinion. It doesn't have that. We don't sign such a covenant. We haven't adopted such a covenant because that's disunity. No, we begin and end here. Whatever this says is where we unite. And it starts with what the Bible says. It ends with what the Bible says because there is not, you know, a disunity at this place. There is a unanimity. And that may be a term we don't often use But unanimity is agreeing on those important things. All right, now having said that, we ask the question again, are we united at East Orange? I believe we are. There may be from time to time someone who is not in agreement with that. And generally speaking, that's easy to see. Generally speaking, when you have someone who is not agreeing on those things, who is not, you know, united in thought, who is a radius, if you will, of a a, a different length, that's exposed fairly quickly, just as much as if you were to draw a circle and each radius measures a certain number of centimeters and one, one radius is four or five centimeters longer than that or shorter. You can easily see it. And so it is the case with unity. Now, let's ask the question, though. When Jesus was praying, you might want to turn over to John 17. We spent a lot of time this quarter in John 17. When Jesus was praying in the garden in John 17, was He merely praying for an unattainable ideal? I asked this question near the beginning of the quarter. In other words, when Jesus said, Father, I pray that they all may be one. Just like I am in you and you are in me, we are one, Father. In other words, to put it in modern terms, we're on the same page, we've got the same ideas about things, we're, we're totally united in that. When Jesus was praying for that, for you and me, Did he know that was something we could never achieve? Was it an unattainable idea? Or is it possible to agree, going back to that definition, is it possible to agree on the important things where we have to agree? We individually, and this is the truth, we disagree about many things. Um, Let's start with Wes and me. Both of our football teams annihilated who they played yesterday. And that's about all we can agree on with those two. We are totally disunited in our support of our football team. But is it an important thing? Nancy, no. Does God say anything about Alabama and Auburn? Well, contrary to what a lot of Alabamians believe, no, he does not say anything. No, we're united where we must. We disagree on a lot of things. I have my opinions and views and so forth about things. They range from sports to politics to finances to all kinds of things. I like what I like. I don't like what I don't like. I'm very opinionated about that. Juliet can tell you, boy, are you opinionated about that. I am very opinionated. But it's not anything that Jesus addresses. It's not anything the Bible says. If I like a certain thing or I don't like a certain thing and God has said nothing about it, and I could go to First Corinthians 8 and it would come under that category of neither am I the better off if I do it, or the worse off spiritually for doing it, then it's fine. But where we must agree, where there must be unanimity, the important things, we've got to unite. And collectively, we've got to agree on those things. And there just can't be this bringing together, as is so popular, all these different ideas, you know, all these different practices, and hope to have unity as the Lord was praying for. So we say it like this. The real unity of John 17 comes down to this. Collective agreement is mandated by God for unity. We speak where the Bible speaks. Is how it was said 200 years ago when brethren were you know, converting to Christianity and establishing churches all over the country and then all over the world. We speak where the Bible speaks. We are silent where the Bible is silent. That's the collective agreement. In other words, I don't come in here and say, you must like hot sauce on your wings. God just doesn't say anything. Thankfully, He does not say anything about that. Because I hate it. But a lot of you like it. But I'm not going to come in here and say that because that's not where the Bible speaks. It just really doesn't address hot sauce one way or the other and a host of other things. There's collective agreement mandated for unity. However, taking the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, God has addressed that. With unleavened bread and fruit of the vine, He's addressed that. And that's why we do what we do. And there has to be collective agreement among all of us. Because every Sunday, we're going to do this. And if you believe that it should not be done, or you believe there ought to be something else eaten, and we should drink something else, then... There's going to be a problem there. You're not going to be united with the collective on that and a host of other things that is true. However, God allows for individual disagreement and God allows for growth. It is one thing to say, you know, I disagree with taking the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning and having unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. Now, that's one thing. But that is totally different from someone saying, I don't understand why we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday morning. Or why we have to have this cracker and grape juice. I don't understand that. You see, that's allowing for growth. And that's allowing for disagreement. But is the willingness to say this, I don't see it the way you guys see it. So let's pull our Bibles out and show me where it says that. And once we pull the Bibles out and we see the passages like Matthew 26 and Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 11, someone then walks away and says, okay, now I understand. But it is that openness to going to the Bible. And it may take a number of those meetings. We may sit down together and a person says, well, I still don't see it. I want to, but I don't see it. It may take a number of meetings, but that's where we are in thought. That's our mindset about it. And that's unity. That they all may be one, Jesus prayed. And so we who are part of the collective here at East Orange, we have been called. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 1. This was our theme verse for the quarter. And if you'll notice, 1 Corinthians 1 is very special. It is not simply calling for a union of believers. Let's all come together regardless of what we believe. There is a staunch difference between that and 1 Corinthians 1. So let's read verse 9 to start with. God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you, all of us here, you were called into the fellowship, notice, of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that says a lot. What does that say? That says that the person who controls and commands and dominates this place, is not me, the preacher, it's not Wes and I, It's not the men who are going to meet this afternoon in the business meeting. It is Jesus and Jesus only. I'm not a Lord of this congregation in any sense. I don't tell you what to do in any sense, nor do Wes and I together as evangelists here, nor do the men who meet together in any sense, Jesus alone is Lord. If we start with that, then we understand that, notice verse 9, God is faithful to that. God is faithful to that whole idea where there's one Lord, and that is Jesus. But not only that, we have been called, all of us, the collective here, have been called into fellowship, not just with one another. And that's where the religious world and so many people miss it. It is the idea in the religious world that we're all going to share in what we believe. We're going to have a fellowship of believers. This communion, this community, all those terms are related. We're going to be partners, etc. And then we decide what we're going to agree to and not agree to. It's like two people coming together in a marriage, in a modern sense, and saying in the marriage, let's decide where we're going to agree. And you're like, how is that a marriage? How is that two people becoming one when you're going to decide what few things you will agree on and the rest of it you'll disagree? That's not being one. That's just two people who come together and in a very limited sense. But notice, God does not call us to a fellowship. God calls us to a specific fellowship, and that is the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ. We've been called into that fellowship. And so here's the idea. Jesus being Lord is what each of us shares together. We share it together with Him because we all agree to that. We obey the gospel, agree. Jesus is going to be my Lord. And that's what we share with each other person here, with every other person here. The one thing that we have in common, the one thing we have in common is that each of us submits not to each other and certainly not to a a greater person or a person in authority, a human being that's in this church. We submit to Jesus. And that's what I share with you. And there is no other person on earth to whom I submit as my Lord and never will. So we completely share that. Now notice verse 10. Now... That is based on that submitting, you know, that submission to Jesus as Lord. Now, I beg you, brother, I beseech you, in the name, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. How can we do that? Sometimes people will look at verse ten and say, "How can everybody speak the same thing?" That's easy, because what we're speaking is Jesus is Lord. That's where it begins, that's where it ends. That you all speak the same thing. Notice in verse 10. That there be no divisions, no schisms, no dividing between at all. person will say, how can that be so? I'm divided from everybody I know, at least on something. No, it's a particular unity. And that is that Jesus is Lord. That there be no divisions among you in verse 10. But that you be perfectly, completely joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Again, people will say, my mind doesn't work like anybody else's. And I know some of you very well, and I know that's true. You know, <laughs> And nor does mine. But that's not what we're being asked to do. If God was calling us, if He was calling me to think like everybody else, to think Perfectly, totally, 100% like everybody else. Well, I'd have to agree with Wes that Auburn is the best football team. And it ain't happening. It's just not going to happen. Oh, but all joking aside, he's not asking me to do that. He's asking me to think like Jesus thinks. To judge. That is, in the sense of what's right and what's wrong, to judge as Jesus judges. Now, I may not know the mind of Christ on some particular subject, and I may not know the judgment, what is right and what's wrong, but I've got this. And if the two of us come to this book saying, you know what, I may not be right, you may not be right, we both might be wrong, but Jesus is right, then we have unity. And that's exactly where we're being called to in 1 Corinthians 1, 9 and 10. The unity begins with a genuine commitment to fellowship. Notice, with one another, yes. But more importantly, with the Lord. And if we have true unity, it is through the Lord that we do. We build and maintain relationships. And I think we've built and maintained relationships here as fellow members of the church. And some of them are very close. You know, we have family relationships and friendships and companionship And the Bible even speaks of that. In Ephesians 3, and verse 15, the whole family of God is named in earth. Or 2 Corinthians 6, you know, a passage we spend a lot of time on. We're yoked together with other people. Sometimes we're yoked together in marriage, in business, certainly as members of the church here. We're yoked together. And we are all importantly, in verse 18, the sons and daughters of God, as we are yoked together. Our life precious faith that the Bible talks about is both doctrinal and practical. In other words, it's not just a teaching, but we put it into practice. We believe it. We live it. We share it with our brothers and sisters. And we develop it through socializing wisdom. Some of us got together yesterday and went bowling. Well, they bowled. I watched. But anyway, we went bowling. And we had a great time together. But it's not just about having fun. No, there's something going on. You know, the the idea of socializing, and we talked about this. We use it as a term for engaging in activities. You know, they can be leisure or recreational or social or even academic fellowships and occupational socializing goes on. But the idea in all of that is you come together with a group of people, usually people in your what's called social circle, quote-unquote. But that second bullet point is so important. It's what's often forgotten. We we know it as, we apply it to little children. We talk about children not being cut off from other children because they listen to it. They learn social behavior. Because inherent in the term is the idea of adapting to the ways that others conduct themselves in society. And if one child is taught manners, another child watches that. You know, one child says, yes, ma'am, to the teacher, and children look at that. Why would you say that? Well, because you're supposed to say, yes, ma'am, to your teacher. Or please, or thank you, or all those kinds of things. We talk about children learning social behavior, becoming fit and trained for a social environment. And then we forget it. Because we grow up. And we began to draw to ourselves people to socialize with where we adapt our behavior and we become fit to engage in that group's behavior. And sometimes the people we garner to ourselves are teaching us all the wrong things. And so God would say, yes, learn social behavior that's taught by me. And gather to yourselves people, whether it would be in church, friends, or whatever it might be, even husbands and wives, but gather to yourselves, yoke yourselves with people that are going to help to fit you for my kingdom. And that's what God would teach us. So it talks about influence and training and teaching from others, being yoked together with brothers and sisters, members of the body of Christ. And it's so important. That's why we... You know, put all this emphasis on getting together with people. And we have these various activities where we come together like we just recently did. Some of them are collective, you know, some of them are private individual things we do. But like the tent meeting that we did where, you know, we had that special event on a Saturday. We came together. And then, you know, other activities that are going on. I've got some on the list out there. There are other activities that others are doing that I know about. It's all part of that socializing to become more and more united, to share our light, precious faith. In John 17, I'll run through this quickly. This is what we looked at last week. We don't compromise our values, our ethics, our principles. We don't do that individually. We don't do it congregationally. We are not about number. I'd love to see the numbers grow tenfold on this board, but not at the sacrifice are at the sake of one point of doctrine. It doesn't matter how many numbers we can get, it's not worth it. People do digress in society. They go down, to put it bluntly, and I don't want to go down with them. That's just the nature of a society. But we allow for growth and maturity out of our brothers and sisters. We believe in them. Talked about this last Sunday. We believe, we trust. We try to believe the best. We try to give the benefit of the doubt. Because the greatest threat to real unity in a church comes from compromise of the truth. That's true. But it also comes from factions and divisions that are fostered by brethren. Somebody comes up with a new way of doing things, you know, springs it on everybody else, and all of a sudden we have trouble. And people are saying, yeah, but God says this, and that's the way it's always been. Yeah, but let's try it this way. And so then there's problems. Psalm 133. I'd like for you to turn there with me. And I'm going to close out by looking at Psalm 133. And I looked at this about midway through the quarter. And I wanted to come back to it. Verse 1 teaches us, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I want you to notice how those terms are piled up. The word that's translated from the original language, to dwell together, literally means to live together as a family. So how good and how pleasant it is for brethren, and that's what we are, to dwell together or live together as a family, but notice, in unity, as one unit, united. And then there are a couple of strange verses here, and I want you to look at this in verses uh, 2 and 3 with me. God directly ties two main sources of blessing to people who dwell together, live as a family, as one unit, united, as we've been talking about. Two sources of blessing. And they're a little strange. A lot of times people will read Psalm 133 and verse 1 and kind of leave it at that because the next two verses don't make a lot of sense. But really when you dig into it, oh, it's beautiful. Because notice what he says. In verse 2, he says... This living together as a family in unity is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down on the beard, even Aaron's beard, and that went down to the skirts of his garments. And you're like, what? Well, here's the point. You ask the question, who was Aaron? Well, he was a high priest. Yeah, that's right. And when Aaron was anointed to be high priest, He was put before the whole congregation, the whole group of people, the whole nation of Jews. And the oil was poured upon Aaron's head to anoint him. And it ran down. And those garments that it's talking about, notice when it says it went down to the skirts of his garments. Those were garments that were specifically designed by God to show that he wore as the high priest, to show the position he was in. Now think about that for a moment. Who is our high priest? Well, that's Jesus. And if I and you, all of us together... Now Jesus is not going to stand up here on the stage and we're going to pour oil on him. But mentally, spiritually, in our hearts, we can anoint Jesus to be the high priest. Who is the high priest? What was he for? He directed all the spiritual activity of the nation. And in fact, His directives went further even than just the spiritual rites and rituals and ceremonies. The practical things of day in, day out living. How they were to live. How they were to dress. What they were to say. How they were to be toward one another. They were to love one another. You know, etc., etc. Well, that's what Jesus does. He directs our worship. He directs our lives. And if we will anoint Him as our high priest, it will be a beautiful, good, and pleasant thing when we come together as a family, all united in anointing Jesus as the high priest. Oh, but there's verse 3. Notice as it goes on to say, It will be as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing and life forevermore. Now what in the world is that? Well, Zion is the spiritual name for the holy city of God, Jerusalem. And Zion, we sing a lot of songs. Zion's call, sweetly rings, etc. Zion is the spiritual name for the heavenly Jerusalem now. In other words, the Lord's church. Well, what is this Dew of Herman stuff? If you think about it, in the, in the Bible, if you were to go back to the Old Testament, you will see the, the land of Israel describe, for example, one that pops to mind is Daniel 8. It is the pleasant land. It was a fertile land. It was a land that was always rich, always watered. Now, if you think about it, when you're an agricultural society and everything basically that you are depends on crops and animals, you need water. And there are a lot of places in the world when when it's raining a lot, not too much, but a lot, the crops are abundant. You know, this season around here has been perfect. Ed can tell you that. He grows tomatoes. It's just been perfect. Enough rain, enough sunshine, exactly what you want for an abundant crop. But it's not always like that. Some summers it's a drought. Other summers it rains so much things don't get enough sunshine. But God in His land had this beautiful system where the mountains of Hermon, there was abundant dew on a daily basis. And it just runs down. Notice where it says, the dew of of Hermon descends upon the mountains of Zion. It just watered the land perfectly. Every day. Like those of you that grow plants and you go around with your little spray bottle, every day they get just enough moisture to be... You know, it'd just be beautiful. God did that for his city. Now, what does that have to do with dwelling together? Because when you dwell together, you live together as a family and you are united. Somebody get the phone. When you are united, God blesses you on a daily basis. God looks at a congregation where Jesus is really the high priest. And where brethren have come together and united in submitting to Him as the Lord, and God abundantly blesses that group of people. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. When we strive for that, and it starts with how we view Jesus in our lives and in our church, we will have unity. Are you here this morning and you need to come to the Lord? Confess your belief in Jesus, that He is the Son of God. Be willing to change your life and live your life for Him to repent. Be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. Your sins will be washed away in the Lord. Won't you please come while we stand standing? Next?